Today, we are taking it all the way back. We are going even deeper into the secret history of comic books. Come on, get those notepads ready. We are going to give you so much information today. Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum, George Perez. You're going to hear from their mouths, in their words, who inspired them. Who inspired George Perez? Who are all the great talents that inspired his work, storytelling, drawing-wise? You're going to hear from Chris Claremont, all of the behind-the-scenes that went in to the greatest run in the history of comic books, the X-Men, the one that he kicked off with Giant Size X-Men number one with the amazing Dave Cockrum. You are going to hear it straight from his mouth. There is so much to share. There is so much to know about some of these amazing legendary runs, Teen Titans, X-Men, and so much more on today's Observations. Hey, everybody. This is Rob Liefeld. I am your host, and you are listening to another edition of Rob Observations. Rob Observations covers the world of comics, pop culture, which means toys, movies, streaming, cartoons, all of it. We try and at least get to all of these subjects at some point uh, throughout all of the mini episodes that we pop up. We are on Tuesdays and Fridays and have been since the beginning. Thank you for joining us as always. Uh, my personal background screams comic books. I was addicted from the young age of seven, which puts us at the almost like ancient calendar year of 1974. And I became addicted. It bit me. I, I have never looked back. Not even once I became a comic book creator. I am, uh, 36, 37 years. I forgot. It's one of those. I'll, I'll get the exact count for next time, but making comics is my passion. I was able to, uh, make comics, create comics, write comics, became a publisher, uh, ran an art studio for the better part of a decade. Uh, again, I've run labels. Uh, I've, I've run, uh, production units within Marvel comics. Uh, it's just, there's, there's really no part of this business that I haven't seen that I haven't enjoyed. And I enjoy sharing it with you and enjoy all of the different ways that the comics industry continues to grow and, and, and evolve. And today we are getting back to some of those secret histories. We haven't done a good secret history episode in a little while. And the, my, my favorite part of secret history is when I'm able to share with you something that I'm not certain maybe that you have, have heard before, or maybe it's something that I just learned that I can't wait to share with you. And I have cultivated all of these stories over all the many years that I, uh, was, was, you know, completely obsessed with following the comics industry. So much of what I share with you is from my old issues of comic scene, amazing heroes, comics journal, which we'll be referencing today. Uh, there was a move, uh, a magazine called comics interview magazine. Uh, there was the comic book buyer's guide. There was the comic shop news. Most of you guys, you 90s kids, if you were a 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 12-year-old, you came through everything through Wizard Magazine, Hero uh, Magazine, uh, all manner of different kind of slick productions that were uh, put forth that, that, that all the magazines that I just laid down for you, Comic Book Buyer's Guide, Comic Journal, Amazing Heroes, uh, Comic Scene, those really did the heavy lifting and, and, and really established what would, would be called comic book journalism. And some of those journalists, uh, Heidi McDonald forever. She has a great, uh, Heidi McDonald, uh, for one is what I'm trying to say. She has a great, 
uh, site called The Beat. And I, I feel like she is the last great comic journalist. She covers pretty much everything, uh, small publishing, big publishing, media stuff. She also has been all around the block, worked at all the different publishers. She's worked at major corporations like Disney. Heidi has seen it all. She's worked at book publishers, and it's so fun to have kind of grown in the business with her. But as far as comic book journalism, she's kind of like the last shining bastion from the the um, older times because she started out so young like the rest of us that she is still bringing a fresh perspective. Uh, I did an interview with Heidi at WonderCon, not not so far back, but hopefully when it pops up, uh, everyone will um, be able to enjoy that, that, that she assures me that is coming soon. But anyway, comic book journalism is, uh, is, is one of the great ways that I was able to learn so much more about the field. And, and back in the day, it was a little more, I'd say detail oriented. There was more talks of process. It wasn't about sound bites. Now, of course, today, the, you know, the websites have really taken over and trust me, I read all of them. And yes, I said, read, I don't really like video uh, content. I am not, you know, a teenager, a 20 year old, a five year old. I understand that video content drives so many of these platforms and there's no arguing that it does, but I really love reading a great article when an article or an interview is transcribed and I can read it, uh, whether it be comic book, comic or collider slash film, one of all the different sites. I peruse them regularly. Uh, I, I read as much as I possibly can. I love a good long interview and some of what we're going to give to you today comes from some of those good long interviews. We're going to cover this in three parts today, the secret history. First of all, given that this last, uh, in, in the span of the last month, we have lost two amazing legends in first and foremost, the, uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, you know, comic book illustrator, influencer of all time, Neil Adams. He is, as I've said on my Mount Rushmore episode, I did an entire dedicated uh, episode dedicated to Mount Rushmore of comic books. And mine are in that particular episode. I, I will tell you this, Neil is one of them. Neil brought comic book illustration rendering a more realistic approach to the form, even though it was stylized. You know, you wouldn't look and say, hey, that's a photo, not in the same way that you look at something that, say, Alex Ross uh, paints and you know that he based it on models and, and he's shown us how he has models and he poses them. The brilliance of Alex is not that he uses mo models. It's the way that he uses texture, technique, colors, um, composition. So, so really the, the, unlike so many other people who use photo reference, Alex, he doesn't lead with the photo reference. You know, it's part of the package, but the package is composition, color, technique, texture. He's just an amazing illustrator. But far, but be, before that, Neil was bringing this to the fore. We've done entire episodes, uh, you know, really lionizing all of what Neil offered. Um, followed by Neil is George Perez, who became very popular in the 80s with his depictions of the Teen Titans, as well as Crisis on Infinite Earths, those were kind of the two giant achievements in his career, the, the, the stuff that would really go on to define him. And for kids like me, I, I, I shared with you my favorite Avengers comic ever recently, and that is from that period that George was on again, off again for about five, six years, always giving us great story arcs. He kind of started his regular profile on Avengers, and he finished his regular profile at Marvel on Avengers before then kind of going over to DC and becoming part of their machine for the better part of 11, 12 years. And then he kind of danced back and forth, both Marvel and DC and other independent companies. I was fortunate that he did work for me at my Extreme Studios at my Image Comics label. 
and I got to see him depict almost every single character that I was um, creating and publishing at the time. So it was a real treat, and George and I had a really good time. But in the time back in December when George announced that he was going to not get treatment for his um, really fatal di- the diagnosis that you know that that his uh, his cancer was was fatal and that his uh, his his you know he had a dire outlook given the extensive nature of the cancer and uh, you know again coming from a family that has been plagued by cancer and mine was for 21 years I I, I understand everybody has to choose for themselves whether they're going to. Uh, address it aggressively, non-aggressively. It's now moved over to my wife's side of the family and everyone makes their own decisions. So when George announced that he was going to make his personal decision to just kind of let this uh, take him and enjoy his last days without constantly being, um, you know, p- part of this, it becomes a very, uh, and, and for those of you who, who know, and, and, and we have had friends whose children were part of this and the daily chemotherapy, the radiation, George decided he was going to bypass all of that and just finish out his life and let the illness take, run its course. When this was first announced, I did uh, really a, a, an entire episode dedicated to George, what he means to me. Um, personally, I've, I've shared with you how I met him as a young teen. He would frequent Southern California constantly doing uh, store appearances, doing convention appearances. But there was one in particular, uh, uh, a time that I went over with you about when he came to a creation con that was held at the Disneyland Hotel. And I told you guys that one of the things, he arrived in a three-peat suit. He had had some really dramatic weight loss. He looked like a completely different George Perez, movie star George. Uh, really giant slick back hair, the, the Ray-Ban shades. Now, here's the great thing. The reason I'm telling you this today is I had no idea until I stumbled upon this publication uh, called Yappa. And Yappa means Young Hero Appa. Appa stands for Amateur Press Association. And I was first introduced to an Appa when I joined the Teen Titans Appa because George Perez did a cover for their first year anniversary issue because the fans of that, uh, uh, because the fans of Appa, of, of I'm sorry, Titan Talk, the Titans Appa had be- become friends with George and he did a cover that was strictly theirs for about four years. Eventually DC used it. George gave it to DC after we had had exclusive kind of enjoyment of it. So it was really part of, you know, unless you were part of that club, you did not have access to that specific piece of art. Uh, And then they used it for a a subscription, full page subscription ad. And it was all the Titans kind of leaning on each other, posing, you know, looking at, at the camera, but they were leaning on a staircase in like the, that, that led down to like the computer, the circuitry technological room or, or, or a room covered with technology and circuitry. Really great shot. And I was like, wow, what are you talking about? Like I, I, my, my favorite artist will do exclusive covers for a fan club. Wow. Blew my mind. Well, that already having known George from all his experience, his, 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 uh, appearances out here, this is, I, I already know, I, I had already known him for about three years, but now, wow, Titan talk. Okay. So now that takes us to like 1983, 1984. And so I joined Titan Talk. I become part of that APA. Here's the rules to an APA and how I have this and call it a publication. They base it on the amount of members, let's say 60 members. And if you want to contribute, you have to send in 60 copies of your written prose, your comic book reviews, or your illustrations. And especially um, towards the um, end of my time in, in, in these amateur publication associations, I would, I was obsessed with these 
amazing colored markers that I was buying from the art store and saving up my allowance and all my different um, work money. And I would color 60 individual shots of, you know, Karate Kid, Timberwolf, uh, Jericho, uh, Nightwing, so many DC. I, I really enjoyed the DC canon. Blue Devil, uh, you know, I, I and, and, and that's a real commitment. Color 60, then get them in the mail hand colored, send them to what is the central mailer. And every year someone new would become the central mailer. So depending on where the central mailer lived, Wisconsin, Indiana, Los Angeles, you sent that to them. They would then collate the magazine. They would create from all of the submissions. So if 60 people submitted, you've got a 60 page or, and if all everyone did was if 60 people only, you know, submitted one page each, basically your app is 60 pages. These were always very thick in the 80 to 100 page appas. People like myself would contribute five different individual drawings or a column, you know, where I would say how I felt about recent comics. Most appas came out every other month. So you got six a year. Hank Canals, who I have shared with you, went on to become an executive uh, at DC Comics for almost the last two decades, at least 15 years there at, at DC. He had been at Malibu prior to that. Uh, you you um, may have known him as the guy who scripted Youngblood 1 alongside me. You also have heard him in the stories. He was the guy who drove all the way up to Oakland, California for the very first WonderCon and watched me get hired by Mark Grunewald. Um, Hank had his own comic book aspirations. He was able to, you know, uh, uh, live them, embody them, and he still does. Uh, I, I think he's continuing to work with uh, multiple publishers or maybe just one publisher with multiple talents, but he has stayed in the publishing game, in the comic book game, in the entertainment game. So Hank created Yappa, Young Hero Appa, an Appa that we could go and expand beyond Titans. We could talk about Batman and the Outsiders, the X-Men, the New Mutants, the Avengers, Fantasy Four, Justice League. Young Hero Appa covered a lot of ground. Well, I am holding in my hands my still-stapled copy of the Young Hero Appa that had a uh, really nice cover by a female artist named Charlene C or Charlene Sai and Jerry Ordway no less inked it and it's a Batman and it's great. This is Yappa number 15 and I'm going to read you these recounts. Hank and I had a friend named John Balin. Each of us wrote uh, a recounting of this in 1986, a recounting of this weekend with George. And so you don't need to listen to what I said about it. And I and I I was like, I did not know I still had this. And I love that I can share this with you because it's not just my words. Again, it's my friends. And it just helps verify, excuse me, as I slam the table, helps verify um, the, the history that I give to you. And it gives another perspective. So uh, John Balin wrote a comment called JB's Brainstorm. John was a really tall, nice guy from Southern California, and we all struck up a friendship because Hank moved to Corona, uh, which is about 20 minutes from my house, and often we would go out to Hank's and hang out, or we would go come in for, you know, uh, uh, a dinner somewhere here in Orange County. Um, at this time, you know, I'm, I'm 18, 19 years old. Hank is probably a year behind me, so he's either 17 or 18. John is older than both of us in his um, early 20s. The one thing we shared was an absolute passion, passion, <laughs> wow, hard getting the words out today, an absolute passion for comic books. So he starts right here on his JB 
JB's brainstorms, John Balin's brainstorms. Well, I suppose that Hank and Rob told you all about GeorgeCon. Wow, did we have a blast. Okay, so it was really CreationCon in Anaheim, but we all know it, it was really GeorgeCon. Because the only reason that we all went was to spend time with George Perez. And we did. Last Saturday, March 22nd, started out as one of the worst days ever. Let's just call it personal problems. But quickly improved once I finally arrived at the Disneyland Convention Center. There were Hank and Rob at Rob's artist table, right next to George, and, and his table, which meant that we ended up as his salespeople and art guardians when George had a panel that he would have to go off to. Sometimes it got embarrassing when people would come up to us and expect us to absolutely be fluent in all things George Perez and George Trivia and practically every aspect of his life. So what I didn't know or couldn't guess at, I just made up. Well, hey, we all can't be Andy Mangles who also came from these APAs, and you know him from his, I think, Mangles Corner, or he wrote an article for Wizard Magazine. So Andy, again, launched into a profession. We all, so many of us, got into a profession. So getting back to this. John writes, We had a fantastic time. As those of you who know, George is an incredibly warm person. He spent a lot of quality time with just the three of us. And boy, his upcoming projects are so exciting and easily the greatest of his career. Hank and I were the first and only so far to see his work on the forthcoming History of the DC Universe. Bragging rights for sure. And it has to be some of the most spectacular stuff that I have ever seen. Truly amazing. He was so proud, as he should be. Incredible. Sunday, we took him out to lunch and dinner. We got the full scoop on the new Wonder Woman. Now he really did his homework on this one. I am so looking forward to George's Wonder Woman almost as much as I am John Byrne Superman. And speaking of Byrne, Marvel Wolfman was there as well. And George let us view with him John Byrne's pencils for the upcoming Titans Annual. His Wonder Girl is absolutely fantastic. This should be so good. Before I run out of room, Rob and Hank reminded me that I should mention my share of our Perez art collection that we acquired this weekend. I got three Crisis on Infinite Earth pages, John writes. Issue 6, page 5, the one with all the beautiful faces. Issue 5, page 18, the last time Kara and Brainiac are one with all the beautiful faces, uh, are, are one together. And Crisis number 3, page 24, the death of Kid Psycho. Who else could appreciate this? I also got the Alexander Luther page from Who's Who. This is a really fab-looking piece of art in black and white. And the giant Raven splash page from the new Teen Titans Baxter, number three. Very scary, he writes. Well, that's all the room I have for this adventures of the terrible trio and our pal George Perez. Did I say how fabulous he looked? Thin, clean, uh, thin, clean-shaven, designer suits, and Ray-Ban shades. Marvelous, darling, he writes. Really too cool. Catch you in San Diego. Talk to you sooner. That was John Balance's recount of our weekend with George Perez. And he even has the date, March 22nd, 1986. So then you jump and Hank wrote about it extensively. He had a column that he put in his Yappa called On the Air. On the Air with Hank Canals. Down, down further, Hank says, I am sure you're going to hear more from Rob and John, but here I go as to our past weekend. John Robb, Hank, that's me, and hundreds of others had the pleasure of meeting the one and only George Perez accent on the first E. Some met him for the very first time. Others were seeing him again. Regardless, I truly believe everyone was surprised to see him. And if you're painting a mental picture of a bearded, rather heavy-set person, okay, fat George. This is Hank Canals writing this, by the way. Start erasing it now. In little over a year, 
Perez has dropped so much weight and has really gotten into fabulous shape. He's shattering the image of a bearded slob in jeans and bare feet. He looks great. He's so proud of it, and he's so glad of it. I think Rob is going to run some pictures. He says, uh, we managed to see pencils for the first issue of the history of the DC Universe. I didn't know that before that it would not be like it would not be like a regular comic. It would be more, more like a textbook, only separated into three volumes. This is not a panel-to-panel -panel story. It is illustrated text, color painted by Tom Zuiko, Zuiko with uh, typeset narration by Harbinger, written by Marv Wolfman. We also saw John Burns' pencils for his 20-page Titan story to appear in this year's annual. Uh, Marv wanted to keep it under wrap because he fears it will be leaked. Uh, no doubt Rob and John will agree when I say that George was the highlight of our weekend, probably more so for Rob than anyone else since George has been such a major influence on his work and his attitude. He was so nice. His show, he's showing Yappa a copy of the cover to the first issue of the new Wonder Woman series. I believe he said it took him four days to work on this illustration alone. It's fantastic. And this series will sell, not only because of, his, of George Perez's artwork, because George is plotting the book and the story, and it's well-researched. His use of true mytho mythological background, as well as his authentic looks to everything, will absolutely blow you away. And before you say anything about age, I believe he said Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Woman's working age is 22 years old. This is going to be great, but don't take my word for it. Does anyone? Go look for that cover now in this issue of Yappa. Even the money I spent this weekend didn't depress me. Along with George came tons of art, and I think Rob, John, Mike, and I, I don't know who Mike is, lightened much of his load. Rob, thank you for the sketchbook admission, and Gizmo, much of his load. Rob, uh, I'm sorry, and Gizmo Page. Uh, John, thanks for the crucial layer of the Lady Cork entry. George, thanks for having these pages, and my favorite Titan Changeling as well for that great crisis page. Many thanks for just being here. All of you made... A very happy 18th birthday for me. There you go. Hank was turning 18. Um, usually I wouldn't make a big fuss over a birthday, but this one was really special and not because it made me legal. It kind of marked the one-year anniversary of my meeting Rob and John for the very first time. Believe it or not, we stayed in the exact same hotel with the exact same view, only one floor lower. The things we heard and saw at the con added to the Twilight Zone experience. It will make it a special day for me. Uh, I ought to tell this story Geez, I ought to tell this story on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, now, I'm not the only one who got excited about my pages, right? Rob? John? He puts in his, in his question marks. And that's it for Hank Canal's recollection of this special day that George came and visited us. George, I'm just going to tell you again, remarked to us very clearly that the reason he was taking on Wonder Woman was because he hadn't planned on it, but because John Byrne was coming over from Marvel to do Superman and Frank Miller was going to do Batman, both the year one as well as the Dark Knight, George felt a heavy amount of pressure to stay in the mix. And he said, I had to take the last great icon. There's three great, icon, three great icons at DC Comics, so I took Wonder Woman. So it was really part of George really fighting to stay relevant against his very competitive peer group. So... My column was called Rappin' Yappin', okay? How Lame has a little, little uh, caricature of me, but anyway, I'll, I'll give you a brief uh, period of this. But then again, since I gave this story, and many of you guys have mentioned to me uh, some of my stories that I had personally with George Perez, I just can't believe, again, here, that in this Yappa issue, we have uh, 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 these, all these different recollections, not just my own. 
So here it is. I call it the George Perez Convention. Seven exclamation points. Yes, it is a sad day in Anaheim. The George, George Perez Convention has come and gone. The weekend of March 22nd, 23rd was the weekend that Hank Canals, John Balin, and myself went crazy because it was the weekend that George Perez returned to California, Anaheim to be exact, after being away from the Golden State for almost two years. It was well worth the wait. This man is hardly recognizable. He is now a bona fide movie star. For those of you who have met George Perez and uh, before, and for those of you who only have your copy of Focus on George Perez for reference as to his appearance, throw, throw those... Um, Throw those memories out the door. This is the new George Perez, and he looks amazing. You have to hand it to the guy, losing, I believe, a total of some 75 pounds while at the same time being a full-time comic book artist. George also brought with him a portfolio chock full of original who's who artwork that varied with his sword quest work to his crisis pages. And of course, John, Hank, and myself could not resist such tempting artwork. We decided to invest in who better to invest in than George Perez. I believe that elsewhere in this issue, Hank and John inform you of the treasures that they purchased. So I will just tell you what I got. It is mostly made up of, a, of who's who's pages, specifically the entries of Aqualad, Aquagirl, Cyborg, Kid Flash, Lilith, Lex Luthor, penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by George, and the double page Brotherhood of Evil, Thick, um, uh, which, sorry, which surprisingly enough, John and Hank had to talk me into buying. I also purchased page 18 from Crisis, number 12, penciled by Jerry Ordway, inked by George. I, um, I just have to thank George Perez again for all the great deals that he gave us that weekend. George was also nice enough to provide Yappa the chance to run his wraparound cover through this issue. George wants to heavily publicize his Wonder Woman book, and he asked me to go Xerox the cover to number one, and I was able to use it and attach it to the end of this wrapping yap and enjoy it. For sure, we did. Uh, George also shared with us all his plans for Wonder Woman, but also swore us to absolute silence at the same time. You will no doubt be hearing them via one of his, one of the comic, comic book news magazines in the very new, near future. Uh, George will not be doing number 12 of the DC Challenge as it was announced due to the fact that he has received, he hasn't received the script yet and his incredible workload is preventing him. Uh, from what little that I saw of the pages to the history of the DC universe, they look beautiful. He shared with us an idea that he has for a metal men miniseries that he would someday like to do. And believe me, that would be a hit, hit, hit. And I close by saying that, uh, it was a very informative weekend as well as a pretty fun weekend. George agreed to collaborate on a cover for Yappa, with me, similar to the way that Charlene Sai is being inked by Jerry Ordway on this issue. Uh, George will be actively uh, plotting the Titans again and providing layouts for Ed Barreto, uh, which will be tightened up to ink. Uh, this, this is, again, sharing the, the, the news that he was sharing with us at the show. Uh, that's it as far as George Perez gossip is concerned. If George happens to be coming to any of the conventions or comic stores near you in the near future, do yourself a favor. Go see him. You will not believe how different and how transformed he looks. Thanks again, George, for a great weekend. Now, if we can't, if we can just get to San Diego, I write. So I wrote you three columns and the comp the, the, the real reason I, I shared this with you is in following George's passing. Uh, I just wanted to share with you again, how much we were touched by him. And the fact that I had just real, real life 
you know, documentation of our time that we spent with him. And the thing about George and his appearance, I know we all mentioned it again and again, George mentioned it to us every few minutes that weekend. He was so proud of the weight that he had lost and of the transformation that he had achieved. So, so we're just telling you what was told to us repeatedly, repeatedly. Now, all of us, I, I, I know I eventually in my great sell-off of artwork in like 2000, 2001, because I had literally almost amassed six feet of artwork. I felt like the comics industry was very doomed. It was it was dangerous to hang on to that. And over the course of a year, I sold everything. Now, here's the thing. People who know me know this. I don't regret selling any of it. I, I had it. I live with it. Those pages alone, I live with for 14 years. Some pages a little longer. Um, you know, once you live with it and you have it, sometimes the, it's just the idea. The idea is that you obtain it in the first place. And obtaining it is, is, is part of the fun. But then eventually you... Um, you move on and, 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 and other things, you know, other fears, other, other, other parts of life occur and you just kind of let things go. And in that instance, um, I'm, I hope those guys have their pages. I eventually, there have been people who I know recently, uh, a gentleman who I sold the, uh, Aqualad Aquagirl was like, Hey, I got that from you, you know, back in the nineties. So I'm really, you know, I thought it was in the two thousands, but anyway, here we go. Final recollections of George. I wanted to share that with you. But now I'm going to pivot again to George so that you can learn some secret history about George Perez himself as a creator and his creations. Because I stumbled upon, as I mentioned earlier, some really great journalism, some really amazing journalism. And that amazing journalism that I'm going to share with you comes from the aforementioned magazine, uh, the Comics Journal. Let me tell you something about the Comics Journal. Everybody wanted to talk to the Comics Journal. The Comics Journal likely has the best interview with your creator of that time. I think the only Comics Journal interview they ever did with me was the one that I shared with you in the feud, the Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld feud episode where we both talked to Comics Journal. Todd is decidedly scorched earth. I took it upon all of the great uh, recommendations of my friends at the time to just be nice and play, play kind and do not inflame the situation on any way, in any way, shape, or form. And I didn't. But that's the only time I really talked to them. But all of us as peers eventually spoke to them. I mean, all of the peers that we, all of my peers, I think Jim did an interview. I think George did an interview. I don't know if Eric or Mark did. But the generation before us, Starlin, uh, 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 John Byrne, I've read some of the best quotes from the John Byrne interview, the one where he chews out Everybody, and I mentioned this in I think the second or the third or the fourth episode of season one. We are coming, we are almost at, at, at year number three here, by the way. But it is that in that comics journal in, interview in 1980 where John takes shots at everybody. He takes shots at Starlin, he takes shots at Len Wein, at Marv Wolfman, he takes shot at Bob Layton, he takes a shot at George Perez. He is feeling his popularity, and it is a funny interview. It is funnier now than it was then, and it was always funny. But in this interview in 1982, uh, published in 1983, the Comics Journal visited George in his house in uh, in in New York. He was still li- living in uh, in Brooklyn. I'm sorry, yeah, he was living in Brooklyn at the time. And they went and they visited him and uh, had a very uh, extended interview. But there are some really great insights and stories in here. And he talks about how he got into the business, and it was. This is George Perez. I was an assistant to Rich Buckler. He was the first one that helped me out. He was the first professional training I ever had. Now, Rich Buckler was drawing Avengers, Fantastic Four. He was drawing Deathlock. Uh, He was really 
doing a ton of extended runs on different books. My first comic that I picked up that blew me away in 1974, Fantastic Four, 147, Prince Namor, you've heard me mention it, flying out of the ocean to battle the thing in Johnny Storm. He did a great blend of Kirby dynamics and and modern kind of era techniques. And I love Rich Buckler. He always worked with great finishers. He could kind of pull off a Neil Adams style, a Jack Kirby style. Um, he went on to, in the 80s, for DC, do tons of Superman comics, tons of Superman covers, and probably his biggest achievement is All-Star Squadron, which was, which was a revisitation of all of DC's World War II kind of era characters. That is the bell to tell me to keep moving on. So here's the deal. Uh, he worked under Rich Buckler. That was as an assistant, and, 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 uh, and he says here, I was working as Rich Buckler's assistant and was able to show my work to editors. He said that he was criticized early on for his poor anatomy. These are these are his 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 words. Um, uh, my lack of perspective, my poor anatomy. He said the only thing that they liked was my dynamics. They all told me that that was my strongest suit. But as far as basic drawing ability, I did not have knowledge of real anatomy. I did not have knowledge of real perspective, and those are the things that I had developed over time. So, uh, he speaks of when he got his all of his artwork back from DC Comics and that he had just, um, that, that, that he was going to buy a better place to live because of the money that was coming in on the sale of that artwork. Um, then they asked him about the growth in his artwork, and that's all very interesting, but I want to get down to uh, uh, the, the, the part where they ask him about his influences, because the, 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 I'm going to probably start a series you know, called, called Voices of the Artist, where the artists tell you about their work, especially some of these artists who are now gone. I mean... Two months ago, Neil Adams wasn't gone. He's now gone. So the stuff that he said in print and that we can find and anything he did on a video or, or, or a live feed is is something that we should focus on because his words matter and, and what everyone's uh, saying, you know, really matters. Uh, he talks briefly um, about his deadline problems and that he had kind of been taken off the, the uh, routine, the reason he was gone in between on the Avengers and then kind of bouncing around was because he said he was having going through a divorce, George was, and having some emotional issues. Um, but he then uh, talks about how DC transformed him. And he, they ask him, are you and Marv Wolfman given complete freedom to do with the new Titans what you want? And George says, yes, sometimes too much. They feel that the Titans sell so well that they can trust us. And that when we make mistakes, he and Marv Wolfman, they sometimes let it slide, which it shouldn't. I've made some art mistakes or some things that Romeo Tonhall misinterpreted, which were let go because they figured, well, we can trust this book. I don't think any book is that good. No book should be given that amount of full freedom because we are all going to make mistakes. Marv made mistakes. Letters made mistakes. I've made mistakes, George says. Romeo's made mistakes. And if, they're going, if they are not going to be caught and corrected, the book will suffer for it. We are given a very, a very fairly, uh, we are given a fairly autonomous hand, but not so much that the thing is going to be anarchic. Um, he says, uh, when he asks about mistakes, he goes on to describe that he didn't spot blacks on a character named Blackfire, a villain's costume, because he wanted to be black leather, and because he didn't fill it on the lead, and it was layouts and breakdowns that Romeo Tonhog didn't either, and so you have this character called Blackfire who has no black on their costume, and this is the kind of stuff, the nitty-gritty that he was, um, that, 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 that he would talk about. In this interview with the Comics Journal, and it says, uh, they say, what is it like with you and Marv having your best selling creation be something that you created rather than characters you, that were created before you. 
George says, when working on established characters, it's almost like you have the shell there and you are animating statues, trying to put something, putting life into something that is physically there. From the Titans, we were working from the inside out. We knew the characters as individuals and we had a lot of ourselves in there. So we work from what the gut feeling is to their reaction and how the character develops its physical self based on the inner feelings. The characters work from the inside out as opposed to just being animated statues, which is what I had on the Avengers or Fantastic Four. The Titans are more alive because I'm the daddy. And that makes all the difference in the world. We understand the characters inside and out as opposed to having to research them. He says, how closely do you guys, being you and Marvel, from work together? George says, very closely. Marvel only lives about a half a mile from here. But Marvel and I have such a simpatico relationship on the, on the Titans. There are times when I will call him or vice versa to suggest an idea. And he will have thoughts of the same idea or a similar idea the night before. He gives me very, very loose plots, depending on how much of a physical or cerebral story it is, the plots vary, but usually he gives me a very loose plot. I will draw it without putting a single liner note on the book, which is very unusual. I'm gonna speak of those liner notes in a later segment on the X-Men here in this in, in this episode um, that, that, that you're listening to now. So this is interesting that he's saying about the liner notes. He says that most artists have to put liner notes to tell the writer what's going on. I don't put any liner notes. Marv and I have a great um, uh, uh, relationship and a good 85% of, and 90% of the time, he will know exactly what I meant in the story. And what he doesn't understand, he'll make better. I have no complaints the way Marv handles it, and it's the closest working relationship I've ever had with anybody. The fact that he and I are such close friends, and that we live so close together, and that we have co-created these characters just give us the, does give us the, work, the closest working relationship I've ever experienced. See, Marv wasn't just a scripter, and George wasn't just the penciler. They would work this out together. Now, something like the way that the image guys did it, we would do the story and the art, and that is where the advent of the scripter came from, where the Scott Lobdells, the Jeff Loeb's, even the John Burns were scripting over Jim Lee's X-Men or my Captain America or whatever, my Snake Eyes. You know, I didn't collaborate. I didn't talk over a story. I never have. I, I do the story and the art. This is just a manner of how it's done. You're hearing process. I'm offering process. And then scripters come in if I'm not going to script it myself. On Major X, I scripted it myself. It's different. Uh, everyone works differently and the collaborations are different. Kirby will tell you that he worked, that uh, Stan said, I need a galactic threat. And then Kirby would draw the entire thing, including Silver Surfer and Galactus. And then Stan would provide the dialogue. Hence, very much so a story artist slash scripter relationship. Stan will tell you something different. They're both in the ground. We don't know who to believe in that regard. Uh, later on, when talking about uh, George Perez and his influences, and this is where I'll kind of hang this for now. Uh, when he, he's asked who his favorite character is to draw, he has unequivocally, it's Starfire. She's the one that I get the most requests to draw. She's the individual representation of the Titans. I also enjoy Cyborg because of the fact that he is a greedy character, but as far as the most fun to draw, that will always be Starfire. She is, without a doubt, the most popular of the Teen Titans. Um, uh, and then he says Romeo really likes inking her as well. And then uh, then uh, he, he is asked what character does he really want to draw that he hasn't drawn, and I, we all know he will eventually, but he says Metamorpho. Um, he said that... Uh, he said, here's where they say, George, will you tell us which comic book artists have influenced you the most? And I don't remember reading this ever, so this is like news to me. 
George Perez says the earliest influence on my work was Kurt Swan. But then, of course, there was Jack Kirby. And then Steve Ditko, for the sake of the ballet, approached the body. But Neil Adams, Barry Smith, Jim Starlin, Gil Kane, and John Buscema, John Buscema are just a number of influences. Those are the major influences on my work. He says, uh, Jim Starlin is probably the last major influence that I had as far as noticeably looking at a style for influence. There are other subtle influences like George Tuska, whose hands that I studied, little things like that. But those that I mentioned are probably the main ones. Almost anyone who produces a decent amount of quality work has been influenced by someone at one time or another. He says, can you talk about which way the interviewer, Gary Groth in this case, says, can you talk about which way the artist influenced you? Like Barry Smith. How did Barry Smith influence you? Was it his layouts? George says, yes, his layouts and the detail work that he puts in. The fact that he did so much in one panel. And I like the idea of filling up the panel as much as I can. Jim Starlin is the same way, although I prefer Jim Starlin's figure dynamics more than Barry Smith's. I just like the way his bodies moved better. I love the way Gil Kane drew figures flying and jumping. I love his Spider-Man. I loved his Green Lantern. I loved his Adam when he did when he did it. Just the fact that his characters seem to move. I love the folds in the clothing. There's just great reference there. I love the way that he draws the folds in the clothing and the way he does water. Neil does the best water. He says, obviously, those are the dynamics I'm talking of. The sense of bigness that Neil did on all his books. And Jack Kirby was not an influence, was not an influence on my drawing women, with all due respect to Jack. If you're going to be coming into comics, learn some of the basics of actual drawing, dynamics, the power that no one else has ever really matched. Um, they said, what about Jack's battles? Those influenced you. He says, yes, Jack had everyone look like they were made out of rock. When I did the sequences on Paradise Island, I tried to give a more realistic look. Back to John Buscema. His characters seemed to be a little more beefy than Neil's. Neil was a huge influence on me in regards to drawing women, as much as John Buscema was as well. Kurt Swan was the quiet touch I needed so that I didn't go overboard. I absolutely loved Jack Kirby, but I didn't want to be Jack Kirby. I didn't want to be that strong as an action artist. I would lose all sense of my softness if all I did was try and be Jack Kirby. At DC, I've developed a subtlety of character, which is what I always wanted to have. I really envy John Byrne's ability to produce subtlety, the quiet moments. This is where John Byrne is an influence. The sense of design and his ability to do the quiet things and facial expressions. Neil, John Byrne, Kurt Swan, those are the major influences on my faces. And there were a lot of minor things. Kirby's Rocks, for instance. I was basically a comics fan who picked them up from the stands. Al Williamson, Krenkel. I'm, not, I'm still not as familiar with Alphonse Mucha as, as, as far as fine art goes, so I tried to do a little art nouveau. My wife was really into Mooka and introduced me to it. Max Parrish is another one I started to look at because of his great knowledge. Then down here, uh, he said he would love to do uh, humor books when they say, what would you do outside of funny books? And then he says, uh, he says, who knows? Maybe I'll do something and have Peter Ledger, who was an airbrush artist at the time, uh, work over it. He said, uh, um, I just need to be able to put enough of my myself into the work so that it looks like George Perez. He says, the one thing that I enjoy about Romeo Tonhall is he's constantly trying to improve. There was a time that I thought that, that, that the inker should be removed from the book. 
he was strictly a brush artist and he learned how to use more pen for his backgrounds. I've since asked him to use his pen even more. His backgrounds are superb, but very few people can match Romeo for his faithfulness to inking my faces because he knows them almost as well as I do. I am very happy with the way he inks my faces, but I wasn't for the first few issues. I'm not the only one who has been helping him. Dick Giordano has been helping him improve and you can't ask for a better teacher than Dick Giordano. I love to ink my own work because I think I have a much better sense of my faces than even Terry Austin would. But realistically, if I want to make money, I've always loved the work. I've told him if he ever wants to work on anything, a graphic novel or whatever, that I would absolutely love to work with Terry Austin. There was a time when I thought that I would actually prefer Terry Austin to Romeo Town Hall on the Titans. But now Romeo has gotten it down. I absolutely love Terry Austin's work, but Romeo has a sensitivity to the characters. Pablos Marcos was a little rushed when he inked me. Ernie Cologne was a little rushed, but I was probably most pleased with Ernie Cologne's. Gene Day was a personal choice that I had to ink me on the Changeling issue of the Titan Spotlight miniseries. And what he lacked in faces, he more than uh, brought uh, with the same reasons that Brett Breeding did, an extra rendering. The only thing that disappointed me was that they didn't have Romeo's experience inking my faces. Very few people can top Romeo for being faithful to my faces. I'm probably the only one who does it better than he is. So there is some uh, insight as to George Perez, the influences that he had who influenced him, and also, and remarkably, kind of how he viewed anchors. I mean, it's a very candid interview, uh, the kind of which, at this point, George, and he tells you later, he is jockeying for position. He says so in the, in the, in the interview with Frank Miller and John Byrne. He was very aware of his peer group. And so I just thought it would be interesting today, again, as we are in this um, echo of really these passings that are not going to, we're not going to shake them overnight. Um, as for George, you know, I knew him since I was 14 years old and my dad drove me to the conventions and I met him in the stores and I had a great relationship with George. I loved working with him. I don't mind telling you, I always paid him a little better than I paid anybody else. And he knew it. And he always was very gracious just because I loved him. As the years have gone by in the last five, six years, George, much like Stanley, as he got quieter, he had eye problems. He couldn't see, so he couldn't draw. And then, of course, his illness, he got, he was surrounded by gatekeepers. And that's the one thing that I, I, I it's the same sort of um, situation that happened with Stan Lee, except they're individually different because the gatekeepers are different. So they're not the same quality of gatekeeper in either one, but they be, there were people that surrounded them that became their voice, the conduits, the updates, the, you know, social media interactions would really come from the gatekeepers. And uh, when it gets to that point, as it did with Stan, I know that the Stan that I loved, that I knew that I had a bond with, is already partially leaving this realm. And with George, I knew the same thing. What I have for George is the memories that I had that carried me through all these many years, four decades of just absolutely loving this man and so appreciative of him. But when I came across this interview and these recaps, I had to share them with you. Now, the other secret history today, and literally, I just learned this, the X-Men, you had to stay you had to listen 45 minutes to get to this. Okay, check this out. I'm going to read some of what Chris Claremont wrote about Dave Cockrum because I discovered that after the success of Giant Size X-Men number one, which you know and I know and Chris will tell you here, I don't know where the industry goes without Giant Size X-Men. It changed everything. As you know, it was a... Uh, collection of international characters. Marvel had conceived of it. I, I go into much greater depth with this on earlier seasons, earlier X-Men episodes. Um, the idea was to get a uh, an, an Irish 
character, a Japanese character, an African character, a Canadian character, a Russian character. They, they, they figured because the X-Men title had been failing and in reprints, they had reprinted it for three years, that they would use that as their experiment to broaden their international market. You know, you're not going to do it with an, something that works. Take something that isn't working, they figured, and try and make it work with this new approach. And they did. I'm going to tell you a little in in, in Chris's words about the formation and, and everything that went into building the X-Men. But we're going to end with, I did not know that Dave Cockerman and Chris Claremont actually produced half of an issue of Giant Size X-Men number two. Now, there is a Giant Size X-Men number two, but it's a reprint book. But Giant si- the X-Men Adventures were going to continue in a second installment of Giant Size X-Men. So following the Giant Size X-Men, where they are gathered and they beat the island of Krakoa, they were going to gather for a new adventure. But, and I saw the pages. I'm like, wait, I've never seen these. This is new to me. Fully penciled, uh, Dave Cockrum pencils, because I believe they were going to be inked by either Sam Granger or um, Dave Hunt or someone who was inking his work at the time. But they got as far as 16 pages before Marvel switched course and said, no, we're going to go back to the original numbering. We're going to continue X-Men with issue 94 and you know the rest is history. But let me read to you some of what goes into the creation formation of the X-Men and the admiration, the absolute admiration that Mr. Chris Claremont had for uh, for Dave Cockerman. And here's the deal, guys. Chris Claremont is such a great writer, okay? So how great is it, you know, that I'm going to read this from him? He, he writes in an introduction. Now, here's the deal. One of the reasons I'm sharing this with you guys. This is in, as I pivot my chair and drop my phone, this is in uh, a very expensive $100 um, collector's edition art book that is not, I'm sure there's only a few thousand, if that. There may be only 1,500 of this thing. So I figured when I came across it, when I came across it, which I've had for several years, but when I read it, I'm like, oh my gosh, a lot of people aren't going to have read this or heard this. So here we go. I'm going to read this. This is the introduction to the art edition um, of Dave Cockrum that was put out by IDW a few years back. It says, Dave Cockrum was the best there is at what he did. Period. Chris writes, I first became of Dave's work back in the early 70s when Dave became an artist on the DC Comics series Legion of Superheroes and immediately set out to redefine it with his visual presentation. For me, it was like the concept had been swept away by a visual breath of fresh air right from the start. Characters were revisualized, presented in distinctly individual ways that set them apart not only from what had come before in their own series, but from the counterparts in the DC Universe. Batman and Superman represented the now. The Legion was what lay ahead. And based on Dave's visuals, that looked pretty cool. These characters weren't simply heroes. They were people who come from a future that presented people, human and non-human alike, of multiple races, psychologies, cultures, not simply representing Earth, but other worlds and the ways of life through the galaxy. For me as a reader, it was great. Time, people, and careers move on, and when I next encountered Dave Cockrum, it was at Marvel Comics, where I was an associate editor working alongside Len Wein, editor-in-chief. He and Dave Cockrum were working on a revamp of the long-dormant X-Men. How great is this that we get to hear this in Chris's own words? In the early days of Marvel, nearly all the concepts came from three people, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko. Virtually every series involved characters who came to their powers by outside forces, Radiation, the Fantastic Four and the Hulk, Magic, Doctor Strange, Technology, Iron Man, or a freak accident, Spider-Man. The X-Men were something completely different. They did not acquire their powers because they were bitten by radioactive spiders. They were mutants. They were born with them. And because of that seminal difference, they ended up being feared and hated by the world they were sworn to protect. 
Sadly, the original X-Men wasn't as successful until its last Legendary Issues by Roy Thomas and penciler Neil Adams, after which the series was regulated to reprint status for the next few years. Giant-sized X-Men number one by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum would be a relaunch, a new take on an established concept. What would be the new take? The team would now be an international, um, an international squadron with the bulk of the original membership, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Angel, and Beast, being replaced by Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Wolverine, Banshee, Thunderbird, coming respectively from East Africa, Bavaria, Russia, and Canada. Thunderbird was an Apache from the American Southwest and Banshee, an existing character from Ireland. The only holdovers from the original team would be Professor X and Scott Summer slash Cyclops as its leader. The concept will be presented to the marketplace in a giant-sized quarterly edition. For this new series, Dave needed to visually create a quartet of new characters, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Thunderbird. And as they came to life over the course of that first introductory issue, he nailed it. Each represented a part of the world the audience was not used to seeing, and each was distinctly cool. That his first giant-sized issue surprised everyone. It was a resounding sales success. Len and Ween had already were already hard at work on giant-sized X-Men number two when two things occurred. That pretty much changed everything for me, Chris talking of himself, and for the modern comics industry itself. Marvel decided that the giant-sized edition was not going to be commercially practical. Therefore, they wanted to publish X-Men as a standard 17 bi-monthly title. Lynn resigned as editor-in-chief to assume the writing responsibility on four monthly titles. One of these, I know, was the Hulk. Another was Spider-Man. Another was Fantastic Four. The problem was he was doing so much he would have to give up writing X-Men. This is where I come in, says Claremont. I love the characters. I love the concept since my first involvement at Marvel. And I desperately wanted the opportunity to work with Dave. Here's the deal. And this is the one thing. And Chris has always been very obvious. I'm kind of pivoting away from what he's writing right now. Give you some side side perspective. As a kid, when I would go to the different shows, when Art Adams first came on the scene with his samples, right as he was getting long shot, Chris Claremont sidled up to him. We got to work together. We got to do some work together. You're so talented. You're so amazing. I want you to draw my stories. Uh, Chris always followed the talent. Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, Paul Smith, Art Adams, okay? Uh, there was a girl named Cindy Martin, a lady named Cindy Martin. She was so young. She, I saw her show her samples. Uh, Chris was so taken that he said he would physically represent the samples back home at Marvel, and she was so thrilled, and he was like, no, your work is really interesting. It was kind of a interesting kind of a Walt Simonson, very angular, very interesting. As a kid standing there from the table looking at Cynthia Martin's work, I knew like, wow, this is this is ready to go. She's she's really accomplished. Her work is ready to publish right now. Well, lo and behold, she took over Star Wars for like the last two years of the Star Wars series. And, and again, so Chris would champion artists. If he liked your work, he wanted to be involved with you. And, uh, and, and again, right here, I mean, he wanted the opportunity to work with Dave. Of course he did. He was an artist. I mean, he was a writer and he needed a great artist. And Dave was one of the best. He said, and thus slightly by accident, history was made. He said, so there we were, Dave and I were off and running with a story that was already plotted by him and Len Wein, wherein the X-Men go up against an old established villain, Count Nefaria and his Annie-Men. The heroes win, of course, but at a terrible price, Thunder, Thunderbird sacrifices his life to bring the villain to justice. For the first time in years, we had a major new series populated primarily by brand new characters. Of their origins and personalities, only the barest essentials had been established in Giant Size Number 1. From a writer's perspective, that's an unparalleled gift, but the same applies to the artist. American comics are usually a binary equation, the product of two distinct talents, ideally both in tandem, coming up with the ideas. This is how it was with me and Dave. We had ideas to spare. The challenge quickly became how we'd lace them all together while having as much 
fun as we possibly could during the process. So we sat down to figure out who the characters actually were, what we wanted to do with them, where do we want to go, and how would we ever get there. Oh yes, did I mention that within four issues, we had also we also had to celebrate the series, the series Centennial, X-Men 100. No problem, no pressure. Here is where Dave's talent, awesome talents come to the fore. We would sit, we would talk, we would sketch, all while penciling the X-Men, having a punch out with a Nagari demon. That's N apostrophe Gari, Nagari demon. G-A-R-I. Uh, the Nagari demon was later in John Byrne's last issue, X-Men 143. Who are these newly created people? What did they like, dislike, want, fear? What worked with their interactions? What didn't? Both of us had initial thoughts. We knew that there was no way whatsoever a character as visually dynamic as Aurora slash Storm would be anything like the traditional comic book role that of a team's weak link, often helpless, perpetually in need of rescue, beta character. We wanted her center stage as much as possible and as a leader. Secondly, neither of, neither of us was comfortable with the idea of Nightcrawler acting like the demon visual that he, had, he plainly was. We both saw that far too many times before, and quite frankly, since he was Dave's favorite character, Dave wanted him center stage and for the audience to love him as much as Dave did. And what best exemplified that love? Swords. Dave's love for swashbuckling Errol Flynn pirate movies found expression in Nightcrawler's use of that classic weapon. He may look like a demon, but top to bottom, he was a hero. Another point of concern was Wolverine. Lynn's original concept saw him as a young man and the claws as being part of gloves. And you guys, I covered this extensively in a dedicated episode called I Was a Teenage Wolverine. Listen to it. It gives you so much more than what I'm reading here. Uh, he goes, that didn't fit for Dave and me. Firstly, because Dave's presentation of him in Giant Says X-Men number one was clearly a more grown-up, mature adult, a man of age, not a kid. And neither of us liked the claws being part of the gloves because that meant anyone who donned the gloves would be just like Wolverine. He wouldn't be special. His only power then would be his healing. Compared to that, Thunderbird was a much more interesting character. Dave started sketching a shot and looking down at Logan's right hand, clenched into a fist with the central claw extended right out between the knuckles. First realization on my part, the claw's a part of him? Ooh. Second realization, that is so cool. If you doubt that response or the effect that it has in defining his character, just listen to Hugh Jackman in X-Men when Rogue, Anna Paquin, asks him if extending the claws hurts. His reply is a simple, primal, grim-toned, character-defining yes. Want to know where that X-Men film franchise got that defined purpose for the audience with Dave's simple, basic, character-defining illustration. That's the impact that the right artist with the right character and the right image can have on a concept. Now, I'm going to skip ahead here, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go to uh, this part where really it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of melancholy because... Uh, he speaks of the work and, and, and how Dave had to leave the book. And, and it's really funny in that, you know, I guess I never considered this before, but as they were wrapping up their initial, you know, past 100 and then introducing the Phoenix, which he goes into great detail about how they absolutely designed Phoenix. Look at her, 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 her approach, the fact that she was so powerful. He says, uh, you know, I'll preface it here. With Dave, the fun was always in what was going on in outer space. Phoenix was the first step, but we really set the stage back in the opening scene of X-Men 97 where Charles Xavier experiences a recurring nightmare of a titanic space bottle around a binary star, a space battle around a binary star whose final image is a mystery figure in a body armor pressure suit calling out to him. Easy enough for the writer to ask, even easier for the penciler to do a generic, do a generic job, which was not Dave's style. From him came what was one of the most memorable images of our initial run. 
presented with a dynamic passion that stays with me to this very day. I love the spread because it told me right off the bat that I could ask Dave for anything and get something way better. Together, I knew then we could do anything. Before you know it, Xavier's nightmare images became reality in the form of a Shi'ar princess, Lalandra, and presto, the X-Men are beamed across whole galaxies to their first confrontation with the Shi'ar of Imperial Guard at stake, the survival of the Omniverse itself. In addition, that issue was to be Dave's last, or so we thought. Also introducing the Starjammers, an interstellar team of rebels led by none other than Scott Summers' long-lost father, Corsair. Fate can be fickle, as Dave's visual panache and boundless creativity laid the foundation for all the X-Men's success. Deadlines proved to be his undoing. The heartbreak here was that there simply wasn't enough time for him to finish the story that we had been building to pretty much since we started our collaboration. That responsibility would fall to Dave Cockrum's successor on the X-Men, John Byrne. I should also note that Fate Fickle, though she is, has a wicked sense of humor, irony, because the artist who succeeded John on X-Men turned out to be none other than Dave Cockrum, returning to what was acknowledged across the industry as the hottest title being published. Were things crazy before? Oh yeah, and they would get crazier still. So the bottom line is, and what I wanted to just kind of really focus on is knowing that this was uh was was the last issue that he would do he jammed it dave cockrum i remember x-men 107 has this great cover with the obvious i've talked about this echoes my very first Rob observation podcast talks to you guys about echoes and how the squadron supreme looks exactly like the justice league later on dave cockrum the guy that made kind of the Legion cool in the 70s is now depicting the Imperial Guard and they look just like the Legion from the guy that redesigned the Legion. And now you have obvious echoes. They looked like the Legion. The X-Men are about to battle a Marvel version of the Legion of Superheroes and it was fantastic. And it had the Star Jammers. So you got all those characters in issue 107. Five new characters in the Star Jammers. What was it? A dozen new Imperial Guard members? Maybe more? But it was Dave Cockrum going out in a blaze of glory. He is going to show you and flex to you and give you his single best issue. And I think after like X-Men number 100 and X-Men 107 are the two best issues along with Giant Size X-Men number one that George, that, that Dave Cockrum ever drew. Dave Cockrum was flexing on 100. He was flexing on 107 and obviously he was flexing on Giant Size X-Men number one. So he came in as powerfully as he went out. But these pages of giant-sized X-Men 2 are unique and told a completely different story. And when I look at it, at it I, I mean, I'm, they are lush pencils, lush, lush pencils, and they've got the team landing at a military base. The X-Men land at a military base in, in their, you know, Blackhawk and uh, Blackbird, whatever their ship is called. And they lower themselves, meaning an, an entire kind of, uh, you know, assortment of soldiers and kind of a general Thunderbolt Ross guy with a mustache and a cigar. It actually may be Thunderbolt Ross. I was reading the liner notes, but it's covered in liner notes. Remember I told you about liner notes? I mean, it says, sometime later, X-Men barrels over the Cheyenne Mountain uh, escorted down by F-16 F1, interceptors. The ship lands. Tanks and stuff mutter about. Soldiers greet them. 
It says here, as Storm, Colossus, Banshee, and Cyclops come out and shake the general's hand in this middle kind of widescreen panel, it says, outside uh, outside the ship, Psych Cyclops is startled. Aren't you? That's right. General Fredericks. So it's not Thunderbolt Ross. He just, just looks just like him. He goes, uh, seems you'd... Uh, you and me, something always turn up together. I guess this character was from X-Men number 23, it says in the parentheses. And then uh, 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 one of the soldiers is looking at Storm and says, if she's a mutant, um, where do I sign up? So he's very attracted to Storm, who is opposite this guy in this um, this this long panel. Then the general says, uh, General Frederick says, uh, I've never really been totally convinced that you weren't in cahoots uh, with the enemy. Anyway, then they see this giant door and they don't know how to get in and Nightcrawler says, I can teleport in, but not before there's a really great shot of Storm in the forefront, foreground, uh, Cyclops in the middle ground, and the General in the background. And he's saying about all the different fortifications and how they couldn't get in. What happens on the next page is Nightcrawler, uh, uh, Cyclops asks Nightcrawler, it's a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. a little bit of a George Perez going on here with 10 panels on this page. Uh, Nightcrawler, uh, is requested by Cyclops to Bamf in. And again, again, there's liner notes all around here. And Nightcrawler goes in and he uh, goes into the... Uh, Nightcrawler goes into... Uh, on the other side of the, of the door and opens it. And all the X-Men, Wolverine, Colossus, uh, Thunderbird, Cyclops, Banshee, Storm, Nightcrawler all come by. A couple of laser guns. They all fly through the now open door because Nightcrawler morphed inside bamfed inside opened it they fly through a bunch of laser guns fire at them storm evades them and cyclops blasts them with his uh blaster and then he asks thunderbird if he's okay and thunderbird says don't you single me out and thunderbird is standing alongside wolverine aurora slash storm is landing next to him and colossus is standing behind cyclops beautiful pencils never seen them before pages 15 and 16 of the giant size x-men number two that was rerouted re-assorted realigned and I just sit there and I go, I, I didn't know. I didn't know the Giant Size X-Men franchise was going to be the franchise, that, that they that they were just going to do four quarterlies, you know? And uh, Chris goes on to say, without Dave Cockrum, who knows what we would have done. When he, he also mentions that when Dave came back after John Byrne and all the different storylines they did with Doctor Doom, with the arcade, uh, arcade going back to the Shi'ar, the Imperial Guard, introducing the Brood, he just heaps copious amounts of praise and says, but for everything, without Dave Cockrum, this is the guy that wrote it all. This is, you know, Chris Claremont went out on to become his own cottage industry in, in, in being kind of the captain of the X-Men ship. Chris Claremont says, and I read uh, very clearly, he says, uh, down below in this art edition book, he says, uh, without Dave and Len Wein, and my working with them, X-Men, would not have existed. What would the shape of the last 40 years of comic books publishing have been without X-Men? Successful, perhaps? Successful for Marvel? Who can say? You take away Dave Cockrum, you take away the X-Men. Who knows where the industry would be today? To my eyes, that's a debt right up there with all that's owed to Stan and Jack and Steve. To tell the truth, much of that aspect as things tickle one side of my brain, it's not even close to what I truly wish for. 
I miss my friend. I miss sitting with him and his wife down by Washington Square, tossing ideas back and forth, creating new characters, telling new stories, excited for more of the journey than actually reaching the destination because each ending was actually another brand new beginning. Dave Cochran made me yearn to see what was going to happen next and want as much as possible to do it in tandem with him. And I still do. Over to you, my friend. Knock my socks off, Chris Claremont. It is a hell of a giant, because these these are 11 by 17 pages that this is written out. So probably in a trade paperback, in an omnibus, what he writes about Dave would be four pages. But the bottom line is, he is extensively committed to telling you how how all of the different um, success of the X-Men and, and all the different directions down to Wolverine, to, 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 to Aurora, Storm, Nightcrawler, he, he really places in those early issues in you guys, the X-Men was taken off. It was, it was a book we all loved. My generation loved it. It, was, it suddenly leapt to the fore. And Dave Cockrum does deserve so much more credit than he gets, but I thought that was interesting. The giant size X-Men, these penciled pages I'd never seen before, were just amazing. Again, another piece of the secret history of comics that I absolutely had to share with you guys today. I just love going back and revisiting all of these different um, histories, whether it's a history of an interview or a history of, of, of something that happened in the comic books and sharing it with you guys because it's so relevant because I, of course, put all of the onus, all of the importance on the comic creators. They are, we are the architects, as I've said many times, and I will continue to cheerlead. I don't think we get cheerleaded enough. So don't, please don't be offended when I am here cheerleading, cheerleading my fellow peers. I want to close today's observations going back to that George Perez interview in the comics journal and uh, the interviewer, there was three of them. One was Gary Groth and there's a guy with the last name Ringenberg. And he says, uh, would you say that the fact that you're getting royalties now is an exception of how better comic creators are, are, uh, is, is, is more of an exception than the way they were treating creators like Kurt Swan. George says, well, Kurt Swan is treated very well. I do have a creator's credit, and Kurt doesn't because he doesn't create Superman. Kurt Swan, for you guys who don't know this, drew like decades worth of Superman stories. He was drawing Superman when I got into comics, and he had already been doing it for 10 years prior to that. As far as Siegel and Schuster are concerned, if there was a fuss about the rights, I would not be getting royalties. If there was no fuss about the rights, which was headed by Neil Adams, by the way, more connective tissue between everybody then I wouldn't be getting royalties right now, George says. And neither would Rob Liefeld, by the way. I agree that they did not get what they should have gotten when they first got in the business. But by the time I got into the business, I did not expect any royalties. I came in with my eyes open. Uh, I knew this business from the inside out. Obviously for them, it was a brand new experience as comic books were being formed. When the royalty thing came in, you know, I wanted part of it. I fought for it too, but I wasn't going to leave the business if I didn't get it. I got into the business not expecting royalties. This is, again, George Perez in 1982. But when they did get it, I was so glad. I wish it was more fair to those of us who have worked before. But it's like any publisher, you only pay for what is successful now. And if, and if your books aren't successful as the others, you're not going to get as much. I've heard there are going to be changes for the people who have worked a long time, like from foreign sales, which is what I hope. Kurt's done a lot for foreign sales. He could benefit from that. He says, uh, he jumps down and he says, uh, I know Paul Levitt's who has been maligned by other people, has really struggled like crazy to get this legal thing drawn up. And he's one of the people responsible for getting us so much of what we wanted. I was talking to Frank Miller the other day and he was offered other work and he turned it down. Not because he didn't want to do it and not because he didn't have the time. 
but because he was making so much from comics that he didn't need it. Five years ago, again, this is George talking. Five years ago, when did you hear anyone say, I can earn enough from comics that I don't need any extra work, any outside jobs? It really works well for me. I'm sorry I can't speak for others who may have had bad experiences. And you sit there and you go, look at that. This is the dawn of when things were turning, when royalties were changing people's lives. And again, that is because of all of the people who came before us, came before me. And when we launched Image Comics, again, which is at its 30-year anniversary, which really put 100% of the, 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 the spotlight, 100% of the spotlight on the creators. Because again, you bought Spawn because of Todd McFarlane. You bought Wildcats because of Jim Lee. You bought Youngblood because of Rob Liefeld. They didn't have existing fan bases. You were now following creators, and we put the spotlight on creators. And so much of it was what started with Frank, with Neil, with George and, and, and where they ended up. So I just thought that is an excerpt from a 1982 comics journal interview that I just shared to you from the words of someone who I look up to a great deal, who is no longer with us, but whose legacy will continue to live on, uh, forever and ever and ever. George is just, uh, the very best. You guys know how much I appreciate that you have listened uh, to this show and I hope you enjoy today's kind of reflection, secret history of, of inspirations, of, of, of creator concepts, of, of, uh, you know, really different benchmarks in the, in the comics industry. And I just, I, I am so thrilled to always share those with you guys. So here is the deal. This is the time of the show at the end of the show, when I share the, uh, really kind words and reviews that you have given us as, as I am about to, um, share with you because you guys are so kind. And, uh, today, so, so the reviews and the five stars and all the positive words helps the platform so much. I can't even begin to tell you how much it helps our platform, our positioning. Um, again, this show is brought to you ad free. It is brought to you for free. And I just appreciate so much that you guys are cheering us on with these positive reviews and, 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 uh, reflections today comes from Jaron Townsend. Rob, I started listening to your podcast about a week ago. I've learned a lot of very interesting things so far. My favorite episode yet was the public domain one. There was a wealth of information in that episode and provided me with a lot to think of while doing my boring job. I really appreciate your enthusiasm for comic books. I am a new fan that's been following this stuff for a year now and have been having a great time finding comic books I love and growing my collection at a fast, and then in parentheses, maybe too fast of a rate. Thank you for the show and the perspective that you bring to the field. Also, the Alan Moore story that you told on Cartoonist Kayfabe channel had me cracking up. Great stuff, Rob. Thanks, Jaron Townsend. Jaron, thank you so much for leaving that amazing review. I appreciate it. You guys, when you read that, when you leave those reviews, I read them at the end of each and every show. Thank you so much for listening. You guys know that I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I got a blue check. I can talk to you there. I am at Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Another blue check. It tells you it's really me in both instances. I love your DMs, your messages, all the back and forth that we engage in. Thank you so very much. This is the time of the show where I tell you to take care of yourself. Read a good comic. Watch a good movie. Eat some fun food. Have a Slurpee. Okay, that's what I do. Eat some Doritos. Have fun food is not always good food, but whatever. Mix it in. Have a candy bar. That's what I do. Take care of your health emotionally, spiritually, physically, Emotionally, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. Those are the four benchmarks. Crazy world we live in. Take care of yourself. Relax. Have some fun. Promise me that you will circle back around because I'm going to be here and we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 